Welcome to the Ralph Moore Podcast. Gain the leadership advantage as Ralph pulls wisdom from his bag of over 50 years experience in planting and leading multiplying churches. Our goal is to help you live as a leader you'd want to follow. You'll learn about making disciples and planting churches, but beyond that, you'll gain practical wisdom about subjects like how to manage your team, handling difficult people, pulling a congregation off a growth plateau, and even money management. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. Today is going to probably be the first of two or three podcasts because I'm interviewing a really longtime friend of mine. He's a Hope Chapel guy, and I'm trying to focus on Hope Chapel guys. I've been talking a lot with other people that I meet in Exponential, and I kind of failed to put out my friends from Hope Chapel. And so you're going to really enjoy Jimmy Calhoun, and you're going to enjoy the story that he has to tell. The only janitor in a Hope Chapel that ever drove an ex-Ski Jaguar to work, uh, the only janitor that we ever had who's played in rock bands in front of 100,000 people, who went on to be a pastor and a very successful pastor at that. And so I just want you to meet my really good friend, Jimmy Calhoun. And uh, Jimmy, as we get started, tell us a little bit about the pre-Hope Chapel experience, the rock and roll experience that I I know that you played with Hendrix. I know you played with Sly Stone, Dr. John. Tell us a little bit about what that was like. Well, I was raised in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I just happened to come of age, which I would say 18 or 19, when the hippie movement was at its apex and the rock and roll world was centered around the Fillmore East and the Fillmore West, and Bill Graham was a great big promoter, and he had the Grateful Dead and Santana and all the bands and Janis Joplin that were going to ascend to superstardom. I'm a 19-year-old kid. And I started getting to play and be around that scene just because I was there. And so the next thing I know, I'm, we played one gig at a place called Basin Street West. So that night we were playing and George Clinton and the Parliament Funkadelic were on their very first tour of the United States. And Sly was our manager. And our, my band was Leon's Creation with Leon Patillo. So we're playing away, not knowing that four or five short years later, I'm going to be playing with both Stone as well as George Clinton. And they were going to ultimately ascend to the first black rock and roll band that ever played to 100,000 people. They played the Rose Bowl in Los Angeles and filled it. Just phenomenal. It was really something to behold. And so I stayed in music from probably 1969 till 1981. And during that time, I did play with Jimi Hendrix and Buddy Miles and Dr. John. I, I did four or five different albums and album projects, Mickey Jagger. And I was a member of Rare Earth, one iteration, 1970s. But in some ways, my main claim to fame was a band called Creation. And we did three albums on Atlanta. And the reason... I like that. It's because it was entrepreneurial. And a bunch of my high school buddies, we decided we were going to make a band. We made a band. We made one record. Didn't sell. I'm stubborn. I don't give up easily. So I, I went out and I played with soul acts like Lou Rawls and Wilson Pickett and just to get my name out there. And I started meeting people in the industry. Soon as I knew enough people that I thought I could get a record deal, I went and got my San Francisco buddies. And we, we went and made another record in 1974. 
73, I'm sorry, and it was called Creation. And we were slailing along. We were both the most popular band in Los Angeles. And then Leon Patillo got an offer from Santana that he couldn't uh, refuse. So he left and went that way, and I joined Rare Earth. And then I stayed in Rare Earth till it broke up, and I got another record deal and tried it again. My intent was always to, to be a recording artist more so than a musician or a, a studio guy. Yeah, I wanted to be in a band. That's what I wanted. So I always tried to make a band that would be successful at selling records. Unfortunately, you have to sell records to eat. And so uh, after that, I, I went back with Dr. John, moved to New York. We did a tour, and I came back, and I played with Buddy Miles again. We did a, did an album, and it, and it just it became exhausting. So I'm I'm living in Manhattan Beach, and I had this. Uh, well, I had an MG and a Jag <laughs> at that time. I had a yellow MG and a silver Jag, and I'm living in Manhattan Beach. And the thing about English cars, they always used to say you need one to to drive while the other one's in the shop. And I thought I had that covered because I had two. But then nobody ever gave me instruction or gave me any advice of what to do when you have two English cars and neither of them run. I, I lived in Manhattan Beach, which was five blocks away from Hermosa Beach. I had met Buddy Miles playing with Jimi Hendrix in, uh, at this club in, in Los Angeles uh, several years prior. And uh, Buddy and I had over the years, always crossed path and done a bunch of records. And when I came back from New York in 1979 or 80, Buddy lived with me there in Manhattan Beach. And we would decide to go into the Lucky Market there and buy alcohol. There was a phone booth there that we would call back up to Hollywood to make appointments to go meet people who to procure various party substances. Frequently, Buddy and I would be at this phone booth, which was right at the corner of this lucky market, which was adjacent to the bowling alley where, through a weird series of events, my friend Leon Patillo had become a Christian artist of some note. And, you know, he said he'd come down to visit and he goes, Jimmy, man, you know, basically you're a mess and you need to, you need to find a church. And I said, well, where should I go? And he says, well, you know, I go to Assembly of God church. Look, I file out, looks in the phone book and I found there was an Assembly of God church, I think in North Redondo, maybe two miles from the house. I decided, well, I'm going to go there. Went out, got jumped in the MG. No, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but, I, I thought, well, maybe I shouldn't go to church, you know. Maybe I should continue on with this rock and roll step just a little bit longer. And uh, then the jag wouldn't start. And so I, I never found that church. I never bothered going. And maybe three, five months later, same thing happened. I need to go to church. And somebody in this club I was in says, well, there's this church up on the hill, Hope Chapel. You need to go there. Oh, okay, I'll go there. So I walk in, and then I stayed maybe 10 or 15 minutes. I left. And I, I would come back and attend in 10, 15 minute increments. I'd walk in, sit down for a few minutes, walk out. And that went on for five, seven months. And then something happened when there was a party, a going away party for, for Ralph. And it was at this restaurant. I think it was a restaurant or a hotel or something. And I remember attending and this guy got up and he's saying all these things, cracking me up. It's just, he had the place rolling. His name was Mike Bay. And uh, he was going to be instrumental in my going into ministry and mission in a very short while, not knowing it. And uh, I remember, I remember Ralph talking about church planting and I, the two things I remembered from that era was church planting and mini church. The need to have these small churches that operated like a church, but were still part of the bigger church, 
like a training ground. And I thought, oh, okay, that, that makes sense. I like relationship and I like, like starting little bands and I file out. And then uh, Ralph left and I joined this mini church. They said, you got to be in a mini church. I go, okay, I'll find a mini church. Well, the closest one to my house was led by Mike Fay. It was his house. He was hosting it. So I started attending there. And Ralph and Ruby had moved to Hawaii. And they were the, we were undergirding them with prayer. We were praying for them every before we started every meeting. And so we, I was praying for Ruby a lot. And Ralph, you know how it is when you pray for somebody a lot? Do they become part of you? Well, even a year or a year and a half passes by. And by that time, I'd probably... <laughs> I had probably prayed at least uh, 400 prayers for Ruby, so I, you know, I felt like we might be cousins. And we were at, we were at a fourth uh, Foursquare convention, so and maybe Pasadena somewhere. And uh, Ralph was going to speak, and so Ralph and Ruby were there. And I, I I came out of the session, and Ruby was in the hall, and I went running up. She's never met me. I went running up to her and put a bear hug on her, and. She looked, she gave me a look like, oh, do I know you? I go, yeah, I'm Jimmy. And we, and we made this relationship. And it, it was it was all because of going up to Hope Chapel, getting involved the way I was asked to. I started stacking chairs. Then they said, you look like you're good at stacking chairs. You want to clean the carpet under the stairs, under the chairs. So I became the uh, janitor at night from 12 to, I think, 11 to 6 in the morning or something, cleaning carpets and cleaning anything else needed to be cleaned. So you didn't and, need the money. You were doing because you wanted to be associated with the ministry. Primarily, yeah. I, I needed to, I, I wanted to be a part of. And so whoever was saying, this is what you need to do to be a part of, I was all in. And so they said, you need to be at a mini church? Okay, I'll go to mini church. I don't know what that is, but I'll go there. And, you, you know, you can, I started doing the music a little bit after a year. I started doing a lot of the services. And then uh, one thing led to another where they said they needed somebody to do janitorial work, which I'd never done. And, uh, but I did know someone who knew something about carpets. So I became the carpet guy. Probably did that for a year. It gave me stability. And it also gave me a chance to be with staff, 10 staff. So, so uh, sometimes you got to do what you got to do. So then I know that the, the church runs a, a Bible school called Hope Chapel Ministries Institute. Were you part of that? Or did you really learn to pastor by hanging out with staff? No, I went to HMI. I, I did. Uh, I went with my year. Uh, my years were with uh, Mark Kieber, Dean Maeda, and uh, Jim Hopkins, and I think a couple other guys. And what's interesting about that, I was we were part of a denomination at the time, and we all finished, and we all went out to plant our respective churches. And a couple of the guys went, and they decided there were some doctrinal things that they weren't really that sure about, and they went out and planted uh, churches in the, within another denomination. I remember looking at them, thinking, and they were, they were my friends, and I remember that I intuitively knew, or I, I don't know if it was since if I had been told by Ralph or. Planting churches is what Hope Chapel did, and planting churches was, was our mission. That's Other churches can do a lot of other thing, good things. There's nothing wrong with what other churches are doing. This is what we do. Kind of like uh, there was an old commercial during that time, Chicken, we do chicken right. Well, that was kind of what the message I sent. Hope Chapel plants churches, and that's what we're going to do, and that's what I'm going to do. And, and it doesn't really matter that much what kind of church, as long as it stays doctrinally sound, true, orthodox. So my friends went out, and they, I think I can't remember whether it was uh, First TV Free or Covenant, one of those kind of denominations. They 
they went someplace else and we remained friends and everybody remained friends and we were all able to stay together under this uh, Hope Chapel banner. And it wasn't too long, maybe eight or nine years later in Hawaii, I think it was a football field or something. We Everybody gathered in on, on the stadium kind of seat, yeah. seating. And there's this picture with you know, maybe three or 400 pastors that had all come out of this tree. And some of us didn't know the other and a, a lot of us did. And it, awesome. So take us to uh, Sherman Oaks. How did that get started? And then after that, uh, to Belize. And tell the story about that white guy who said he wouldn't have sent you to Belize black. That's an interesting story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Take us to Chapel Sherman Oaks first. Well, uh, I thought that I was supposed to get a, do a demographic study and find a target dog. And so I thought, well, I need to look at who I am, where I've been and find out who's most like me and go there. And I thought that would be the entertainment industry. And I thought, well, Sherman Oaks, it was really where most of the larger name rock and roll people lived from about 1969 to 75. What happened was Hollywood had the name, but every, nobody really lived in Hollywood. You know, people lived in Bel Air or Brentwood or down in Sherman Oaks. One house I had uh, next door was, around the corner was Delaney and Bonnie. They had a big record. And then next door was Leon Russell and Eric Clapton. And then around, just this one, and Dr. John lived really close. So that for a while, Sermon Oaks was, the, was kind of a cool place to be. That had long since died, but I knew there was still residual. I knew there was still going to be a lot of people there, so I thought I'll do that. But prior to, uh, to going there, I was a little bit apprehensive because Hope Chapel was a beach church. We were primarily, you know, we were a South Bay. In, our, in that section of Los Angeles, Manhattan Beach and Hermosa Beach is kind of an inlet. It's like a little place to its own. It's not accessible off of a main freeway. It's not, you have to want to go there. So even though it was a large metroplex where there was you know, a lot of people, there were people who, who knew each other. It was a small town, a small big town. How's that? I thought, well, it's safer to hang my shingle out. Maybe I should go down to Hawthorne, South Hawthorne, or some other place local in the South Bay. Well, there'll be name recognition. The people will recognize uh, Hope Chapel, and we'll have more success. But I kept hearing this call to Sherman Oak. I'm, I'm at home in my apartment in Hermosa Beach, and I get a phone call. And I said, oh, this is a 700 Club calling for, we're looking for Jimmy Callum. Now, this is him. We're doing something, and we would like to have your testimony on this this program called the 700. So I go, okay. I didn't know how they found me, but uh, that was good. So they sent a crew out, and we did a, an interview. Well, I was doing a Sunday night speaking at, at Hermosa. One night, a guy comes up, and he goes, you know, I'm from such and such a church in Topanga. God said you should be the pastor. We're in between pastors. So I took my mini church up, which was full of musicians. We went up and did services there for about four or five weeks as a favor. And sure enough, they made an offer. They said, well, you, you want to be the pastor? You can do Now I'm torn because here I am in Topanga where there's a lot of entertainers. and But I've committed to going to Sherman Oaks and I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And then the 700 Club calls again. So, well... Your particular segment was very, it was well received. Would you come out and do an in-person interview? So they fly me out to uh, Virginia Beach and I go on and Ben Kinchlow, who's uh, one of the hosts, interviews me. But something strange is going on. Not only are they doing a, a bio on me, they're asking certain questions. They're saying, well, have you ever lived here? Have you ever thought about this? What do you... And they, they took me and showed me around the, the entire uh 700 Club operation, which was significant. 
I mean, they had a plane that they were doing um, medical missions that they gutted the 747 where they would go and fly. I saw this warehouse full of all kinds of stuff. I mean, they were giving away. Uh, it wasn't just a TV show. They were into ministry. They were giving millions of dollars. And but I'm wondering, why are they, why are they, uh, why am I here? And so then the morning we're supposed to shoot, we're sitting around talking and they go, well, you ever thought about doing something on camera? And I go, no, I've never thought about that. And so we have a, an excellent voice, this and that, and you have, Ben's going to be retiring and would you be interested? So now I got, I fly back to Los Angeles and I got this looming offer out here in Virginia Beach. I got an offer in Topanga. I've announced that we're going to start a church in Sherman Oak. So I don't know what to do. And uh, so me and this guitar player, we go up and start meeting under a tree and just go up and play guitar and see who shows up. And one by one, people came. And then it was pretty clear to me that I should finish what we started. And we said Sherman Oaks, and that's where we were going. So I took a, I said no to both of the other off, uh, primarily because I wanted to, to plant a Hope Chapel-style church. And I knew that I didn't want to be in the Christian entertainment industry. We had a band called the JC Band at Hermosa. We formed a band. Why don't we become a band? So we started playing around a bunch of churches, and Sparrow Records came in and offered us a a record deal. We went to play at this one church in Granada Hills, and we, we drive up, we're walking in, and... We're taking our amplifiers and the guy goes, the pastor goes, where are you going with those? And I thought, well, that's kind of a weird question. We're going in there. And he says, what are you going to do with those amps? They're awfully big. He says, you're not going to play that loud, are you? <laughs> and I saw, okay, I'm not cut out to be a Christian musician. I just, right then I envisioned going on the road, being, you know, all these different settings with the, with everybody having a different idea about what's proper and what's improper to do in church. And I, Jimmy's not going to last long because I'm going to end up saying something to somebody <laughs> and blow the whole deal. So somehow all, all these offers got taken away to where I, I stayed true to Hope Chapel. So it was interesting because it became multi-ethnic. And I wasn't aware of what multi-ethnic was. And I went to a uh, pastor's, I took a class or something. After it was over, he goes, well, why are you here? And he's, and I told him, he says, well, tell me about your church. What's going on there? And I told him, the, you know, the racial makeup and all those things. He goes, wow, that's unusual. I've never heard of it. Yeah. We don't have that many churches that, that uh, reflect the, 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 the uh, that. So he gave me his card. He wanted to do something and include in some of his research. But uh, I didn't realize at the time, uh, I, I wasn't aware of how difficult it is to blend people because it's always been my, my habit just to be inclusive and people were always around. And Hope Sherman Oaks started out primarily white. It was probably 90% white. And by the time we left, there were people from Africa, Japan, Mexico, England, Brazil. We stayed there five years. It was a wonderful experience in watching the multi-ethnic vibe. I think I'm supposed to have been told by you, Ralph, that sometimes if no one's volunteering enough, don't do the work for them. Just let the congregation do without. And so I had been driving down uh, and setting up the PA myself, and it was kind of heavy. And I decided, okay, I'm going to do what I was taught, and I'm not going to set up. If they want a PA next week, somebody else is going to have to volunteer. So we went two or three weeks without a PA. 
And finally, this guy from Korea, Jack Kim, he was a great guy. He was an engineer, but he was the last person in the world I'd ever think would uh, want to come and volunteer picking up a PA. He comes up and he goes, I notice there's no sound. Why is there no sound? I said, well, I can't. I'm not going to do that anymore. He goes, oh, do you mind if I do it? <laughs> well, as a matter of fact, no, I don't mind if you do it. And so Jack and I became really good friends uh, as a result. And then I find out that he's an artist. He's one of these typical engineers with three pens in his shirt pocket. But then at home, he's drawing all these fantastic things. I went over for dinner one night and I go, who did this? Oh, I did. And who did that? I did. So he had always been an artist attracted to another artist, but because of his job, I assumed that he and I were not. Uh, so it took for him to volunteer to do the PA for me to get close enough to him for me to find out that all the time we had these the shared affinities. And so, so we need to be thinking a lot about when we start talking about racial reconciliation, about chip and know each other. And I want to make sure that we end up talking about that before we're done. But I, I, I want to, this is probably going to go to three different uh, podcasts because I, I want us to talk a little bit about your journey in, in ministry, because you went from Sherman Oaks to Belize, and now you're in pastoring a church in Austin, Texas. You've become a, an author, like three books and a fourth on the way that have been very successful. And, and you know, I, I'm going to just say something that I probably shouldn't say, but a lot of white people probably don't know what to do with an African-American person that writes books that I find personally difficult to read. Difficult in two ways. One, they tear my heart out in a really good way. And difficult in the other way is you're an intellectual and you don't hide it. And I know that you got some things coming up and looks like in Oxford in England as a result of all that. So I, I think that you are in a really unique position to speak into, because when you and I talk about it, it's really always comes back down to listening to each other and friendship and love. And so many people are trying to address the problem systematically, and it really has to be done, I think, relationally. But we'll get into that. I want to hear whatever you, you want to share with us. And, and I really want to make sure we hear a little bit about your books, because there's some people really need to read those books and read your heart. But talk to us about Belize. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and check his blog at ralphmoore.net.